Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 15th, 2014, and this is episode 1484 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday, and on a Monday we do listener feedback shows. This is where you send me an email. You send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And um, in that email, what I need you to do is make your point, ask your question, provide your link with a brief comment right at the beginning, and then fill in any details after that. Uh, try to get me the point in one sentence or less, and just on time alone, that will make it more likely that your uh, email will end up answered and or on a show like today. Uh, you really have to understand the volume of email that I go through. I do read all my own email. Sometimes people will want my special email or secret email or personal email. It all goes to the same place, and I read every single bit of it as quickly as I can and sort it uh, very, very quickly. And a lot of it ends up kind of on the cutting room floor if you were looking at it from a, a video editing standpoint. And what gets it to not end up there is being able to understand and dissect the point very quickly. So the other thing to do is send that email to jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. That is the email to use. And put TSPC for the Survival Podcast in the subject line. That's a new formula. It is more reliable that I will be able to dig your email out of the trash. TSPC for the Survival Podcast. On that note, if you're ever on your you know handheld device or whatever and you want a quick trip to the survivalpodcast.com, if you use the domain name tspc.co, not com, tspc.co, that will redirect you right to the Survival Podcast. A little uh, shortcut I have set up for you guys I forget to mention very often. Anyway, before we get to your feedback, let's go ahead and take, 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 take care of our sponsors today. Sponsor today, number one today, is KnifeKits.com. Still time to get a knife kit for, uh, for someone for Christmas, folks. Uh, it's a great project, a great way to do skill development, a great way to get into the uh, skill-making world of knife-making. Uh, you can start out very, very simple over at KnifeKits.com with a kit and some handle material, etc., You can get as advanced as you want from there. If you check out Blade Forms and other places where people discuss knife making, you'll see that KnifeKits.com has an incredible reputation and is very well liked by bladesmiths from amateur to master all across the country. Give them a try and you'll see why. Check them out today, KnifeKits.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. This is the easiest company I've ever endorsed in my life because I subscribed to them in 1994. It's 2014. And the latest edition of Backwoods Home is sitting on my coffee table for when I get a chance to go through it. Uh, that's 20 years. I can't possibly give you a better endorsement than that, than, I, than I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home Magazine for 20 years. Check them out today. You'll figure out why I really love what they do. Backwoodshome.com. Remember, Backwoods Home Life Kits, many other sponsors, and a whole slew of vendors do support our show through what's called the Members Support Brigade, where they offer you discounts that are available to you 24-7, 365, and available nowhere else. Check it out. If you uh, join the Members Brigade, just go into Benefits. You'll see all those discounts. If you want to learn how you can become a member and help support the show, get your money back by getting discounts on that which you're buying anyway. Uh, get on over to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, you can see how to sign up there. Remember, I do take silver, I do take checks, I take cash, all that stuff by mail, and I take PayPal online. And uh, here's a little thing. If you've been thinking about joining with silver, 
Do it soon. Uh, the price of silver has been down long enough that I am probably about to raise the price in silver from one ounce to two ounces. Right now, looking at the price of silver, it's about 16 bucks. That's a pretty good deal on silver as far as I'm concerned. Um, but silver's been under 20 bucks for quite a while now. When I originally set the price of uh, MSB at an ounce, silver was trading a little bit over $30, and I've never raised the price as the price of silver's come down. If silver stays this low through the end of the year in January, I'm going to raise the price of two ounces of silver per year. Uh, so if you've been planning on buying in silver, consider this a last chance at getting a really steal of a deal on the MSB. Uh, anyway, everybody else, you can pay by PayPal, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. Remember, you do qualify for a discount. You can uh, just email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get you a discount back. Uh, let us take a look now at the year that was the episode. It is 1484. We have Pope Innocent is a little too innocent, and the people of the Reformation and the pious ones are going to read Pope Innocent. I've always, I've always chuckled as we're going through the history segment at the names some of these guys give themselves, whether it's it's royalty or whether it's the the papacy. Uh, and when somebody calls himself innocent, it generally would mean that they're not very innocent. Anyway, here we go. Pope Sixtus the Fourth. At least that one makes sense. The Sixtus? Okay. The fourth dies at the age of 70. Rodrigo Boriega wants to be Pope, but his rival, Giuliano della Rosave, uh, controls enough votes to block him. They decide to pool their votes and elect a non-entity who takes the name of Pope Innocent VIII. The Pope is Genoan, so he meets the main qualification in that he is not Venetian. The Venetians were, a bad, were in bad odor at the time. As the new pope starts handing out benefits of his office, Rodrigo does well, but Giuliano has more influence and will, and will goad the pope into joining a minor war to support the barons of Naples. It may not seem like much, but the little war will be the first small stone ahead of an avalanche. The avalanche won't hit Italy until the 1500s. In the meantime, Pope Innocent has work to do. My take by Alex Shrug that puts together the history segments for us. Please note that Pope Innocent VIII is not much different than his predecessor, but he will preside over some fairly hideous things like rounding up witches, heretics, and expelling the Jews. He will confirm Torquemada as the infamous Grand Inquisitor of Spain. Stuff like that. He is a pope who presides over the discovery of the New World, but it is not clear which New World they are talking about. The pope will die a few days before Columbus sets upon his voyage. Yet on his tomb will be written during his pontificate, the glory of discovery of a new world. The inscription has spawned some speculation that Columbus made an earlier voyage, but I need some evidence to believe that. In the long run, the exact date Columbus discovered the new world does not change what happened thereafter. You know, my take on that is a couple things. One, because Columbus didn't discover the new world, and I don't mean like there were people here so it was already discovered. I mean, I think there were people that came here, and I think it was largely accepted, and I think that the acceptance was pretty high during this dude's reign, and that's why he was actually noted as such on his tombstone. And that, that you know, Columbus is the guy that showed up a little late to the party but got the credit for it. That, that's kind of my, my view of Columbus and has been for a long time. Uh, the next thing is, I think that, once again, we're seeing evidence that 
what someone in power does that seems to be minor can have major catastrophic consequences in the future. Just think about that as you watch the idiots that are running our country today do things that seem bad, but, well, not so bad. What are the long-term consequences? And then realize that history repeats itself, and many of the terrible things we're dealing with today are things that we, we, we ourselves caused with activities that we took some as far back as a hundred or more years ago, all the way back to World War I and pre-World War I activities in the Middle East. Many of those chickens continue to come home to roost. Anyway, with that, let us get into the uh, main uh, topic of today's show. Uh, and as we do that, since it's Monday, we have our prepper scenario. Remember, every Monday I give you a scenario that could actually happen to you, not these far-out zombie apocalypse things, but things that happen all the time, and ask you what you would do. And each, each Monday I read the one from the pr previous week and give you my thoughts. I'm giving you a new one to ponder for this week and ask you to comment on it. So last week was straight from my interview with Masada Yub, if you remember it. Whether you do or do not put yourself in the scenario, a man attempts to break into your home and manages to do so. You hear commotion and pick up your gun. You find the man in your home. You order him to the ground, but he comes at you. You shoot him. He is down, dying in a pool of blood. For whatever reason, you're alone in your home. There's no other witnesses. You now must dial 911. How do you handle everything from this point? Well, there's a right way to do this. And it, it goes against some conventional wisdom about talking to the police. When I had Moss on, and everybody should go back. If you carry a gun or keep a gun in your home for defense, you should go listen to that interview. And you should probably listen to it once every three to four months. Because it might save you from a lot of problems. And it might save your life from being completely disrupted after your life has been saved from assault. It's that important. And the basics are, and I want you to listen to the interview, but the basics are you dial 911 and you, you report the incident immediately. You tell the 911 operator that you need police and an ambulance on site. You do not render aid to the, to the, to the, uh, the person who's assaulted you. You are not qualified to render aid in that situation, and you do not know where that person is capable of still attempting to harm you. And anything you do that involves touching that person at that point is likely to make matters worse, not better, even though it seems like the, the, the humanitarian thing would be to render aid because you've put the guy to the ground. Um, you, Do not disarm until the police arrive. You stay on 911 if you can and ask to be patched into the approaching officers and let them know that you are there, uh, but you are concerned that there might be somebody else, etc., to be in communication with you and that you will, you will immediately disarm upon their arrival, which you do. You follow their requests at that point. You should give the officers a basic account of what happened. The guy came in the house, I came into the room, it was dark, he came at me, he tried to assault me, I was in fear for my life, I used my weapon to stop the attack, I immediately dialed 911, that is all. You, you give the most basic account and say, now that I've done that, I will be happy to give you a full statement after I have conferred with counsel. You do not say, I don't have anything to say in this situation. When I asked Moss about that, he said most lawyers that give that advice to their, to their uh, clients have guilty clients. Additionally, this is a different situation. You have discharged a weapon. You have used lethal force on somebody. There's no question about that. And you have called, like you're supposed to, the authorities and asked them to come. It, 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 is, it is a bad thing if you're sitting there going, I can't say anything at all until I talk to a lawyer. Um, it, 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 it puts the hackles up on the responder like, I don't, you know, this doesn't add up. It Maybe it shouldn't, but it does. So you're playing the psychology here. So the basic account 
is 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 going to be what you give. This guy came in, blah blah blah, done. And at that point, you also tell the officers you want to file charges against the guy that's laying there on the ground, whether he's dead or alive doesn't matter. If you used lethal force, there must have been something that was done that was a threat to your life or the threat to the life of another. And because of that, a crime has been committed. And it is important that charges be filed against the assaultant. Because right now, he's doing a really good job of pretending to be a victim laying there in his own blood. Um, and and that that is the basic formula. And again, I think you should listen to the whole thing. I think you should take notes on that episode. You should write it down. I think if you're going to be a, a, a person that carries, you should really have, if you can get to it, take Mass's actual multi-day course on this. Um, another thing I would add is it is a great idea to have a lawyer that you know you can call, and I would call that lawyer right away. Uh, and I'd give, again, nothing but the basic account to the police officer, and I'm not going to discuss things further without conferring with counsel. And I would also add to that, it's a good idea to have one or two people that you know you can contact, and while all this is going on, contact them and be in touch with them, and if possible, even get them on site. I, I don't know if Moss would agree with that. Here's my reasoning. If they do happen to take you to jail because they've decided something's not right and they want a further investigation or whatever, which if you do what you what I just said and your legitimate shoot is not likely but could happen, you have somebody on site that knows what the hell's going on. Because the whole you can make a phone call thing, sometimes that takes a hell of a lot longer than it does on TV. And having somebody on the outside that knows what's going on and you knowing that they know what's going on, very important. An attorney and then a trusted person, I think two things I'd want them to know. Like this happened... And don't go into details with them on the phone because you're there now with officers and responders and now everything you say can and might be used against you. But just simply there was this this happened. I was here, somebody broke in the house, I had to shoot them, and and the cops are here now and I could use your help. Right? I mean that type of thing. And and having the conversation with the person that, that could happen in advance may not be a bad idea because having someone that is there for you is is a reasonable thing anyway. Because, trust me, you're going to be emotionally tore up in ways you can't imagine. And getting in touch with that attorney that says, just, okay, you've told them that, okay, great, don't say anything else. If they have any more questions, put them on the phone with me. I mean, that's the kind of guy, you kind of need that, because when you are trying to process this stuff, you start saying things, and you may even start doubting yourself. I'm not sure I really, did I do the right thing? That kind of stuff, you just doesn't need to be said. That's something you are going to feel. All right? For the rest of your life, you're, if you take somebody's life, you're going to think, did I really have to do this? But that is not what you want to say to a responder. And, and Moss tells a story in his interview that you really don't want to do. The worst thing you can say to a 911 operator, the guy that got his store robbed multiple times, finally bought a gun, camped out of his store. Guy came in with a hammer in one hand and some other weapon in the other, came charging at him. He shoots him, calls a 911 operator and says, I got one of the son of a bitches. And almost ended up prosecuted, even though it was a legitimate shoot. And you can understand why he might have felt that way. But you need to be professional and as calm as possible under the circumstances, follow procedure, basic account, and now I want to file charges, and the next thing is I'll happy to be happy to give you more information after conferring with counsel. Anyway, with that, let us get into the first email for today's show. And again, you can send email for shows like this to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Oh, I didn't give you the new scenario. Huh. I got a bad one for you today. 
Your home has been destroyed by fire. Luckily, no one was killed or even severely injured. Most anything of value in your home is ruined and or gone. You are left with the clothes on your back, what you keep in your vehicles, and any items that are de in a detached structure only. So if your garage is attached, if it's in there, it's burnt. Okay. Describe now how you would begin to put the pieces back together. How you would deal with insurance, etc. If you keep documents, money, etc. in a firebox or fire safe, you can assume that those survived. So what, what do you do? You get home, you get your family back together, everybody's okay. The house is literally ashes to the ground. Anything in there is gone, unless it's in a fire safe. Anything in a detached building, stored off-site in your vehicles, we're going to assume is still good to go. Now, what do you do? What do you do and how do you do it and how do you deal with it? Sorry to drop that on you on a Monday. Anyway, let's go ahead and get into your emails and feedback for today's show. This one uh, goes into a completely different vein than what we've been talking about up to now with you know lethal force. Um, and this question is from Daniel. Daniel says, Do you like Steve Solomon and his heavy reliance on soil testing and amendments to grow nutritionally dense food uh, as a medicine-type food? I'm very interested in growing for my family's personal use, nutrient-dense food, and reading Steve's book, The Intelligent Gardener Now. I've heard you talk about how there's enough uh, minerals in uh, place desired mineral here in one tablespoon of topsoil to feed an acre of plants. I think you might be exaggerating, but trying to drive home a point. The nutrients are there, just not the bioavailable form of the plant. Do you have any suggestion for books and information resources on this way of thinking, which is definitely much different to Steve's way of thinking? Um, I, I tell you, my number one go-to on this would be uh, soil scientist Dr. Elaine Ingram. And when I say there's enough nutrient in a tablespoon of soil to feed an acre of plants, uh, I'm usually talking about for one growth cycle, and it's not much of an exaggeration. And some nutrients it might be, Uh, but there's probably a tablespoon in that soil somewhere uh, at some level of a stratification that well, that is true for those plants to grow. And here's how I feel about Steve Solomon. And I, I did an interview with him. He's a crotchety old man. He's determined something that works for him, and that means everybody else is wrong. And I just, I appreciate what people like that have learned and the knowledge they can share, but I do not appreciate their attitude of everybody else being wrong. Because it's generally simply not so. And another thing that you need to be aware of when you look at what Steve talks about is when he talks about things in his past, like they were growing lots of really good-looking food and, and they were eating it and they were not getting all the nutrients they needed, well, they were living as vegetarians. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem. Especially when you're living off mostly what you grow and you're not getting enough protein because you're not eating enough of vegetable proteins, because we are limited in how much vegetable protein we can produce in that type of an environment. Um, soil testing's not bad. It's not wrong, and I wouldn't fault anybody for it. If you, if you look at what Dr. Ingram does, you're going to find a lot of soil testing uh, done. But it's more of a way of proving what has occurred uh, and proving that the soil's not what you think it is than it is to figure out what to do. Dr. Ingram relies mostly on a microscope and a knowledge of what the pathology of organisms looks like. In other words, is this little creature that I'm looking at a nematode or is it an amoeba or is it a fungi, what have you? And then, once I know that, 
is this a good guy or a bad guy? And we don't want to have no bad guys, but we don't want to have a preponderance of bad guys. And the primary divisive line between good guys and bad guys for Dr. Ingram is, is this a something that thrives in anaerobic conditions or aerobic conditions? And if you're moving toward a dominance of microorganisms in your soil that thrive in aerobic conditions, you're going to have healthy plants and healthy soil. And she's worked with countless people on anything from small scale to broad scale agriculture and helped countless farmers move from full-on commercial farming to organic, beyond organic things without tremendous amounts of soil amendment and other things like that, simply through compost and compost teas and building healthy soil with that. And it works. And it works so well that I'm not going to say that her way is the only way, but when somebody says that, oh, you can't do that, that's not enough, you need to test this and add this increment, no, no, no. because it's it's too proven to say, so when some, anyone says only my way works, I, I, I don't have a lot of tolerance for that. And, and that's where I see Steve at. Steve at, is at this, this place where he's created for himself a an island, and that island is an island that simply says everybody is wrong but me unless you do what I say to do. And, and I don't think you can, I think there's a very limited amount of knowledge that you can gain once somebody goes into that mode. And what happens is when somebody goes into that mode, they start to make assumptions that are just not the case, right? The ass out of you and me assumptions, which if you listen to the interview I did with Steven, I'll put a link in today's show notes to it. And he's a nice enough guy. And I actually had to defend him from some of the audience that got a little excessive with basically saying he sucked. And you go get the comments in that episode and see me do that. Um, but he would say, he said things to me like, so you're practicing a slash and burn form of agriculture. No, no, no. And nothing I said should have led you to believe that. Well, I bet you're putting dolomite all over your property. No, 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 no. Never have seen a pebble or a grain or a kernel of dolomite on my property at all, ever. Well, I bet you're doing this. No, 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 not doing that. So, see, when, what ha this is what happens. People get into this mode where, since what everybody's doing is wrong, what I've seen most people do, everybody is doing, and therefore I can assess things from a thousand miles away. And not with a soil sample, but I can assess that I need to do the soil sample because you don't know what you're doing because you're wrong. And it, it, it's too bad because I think the guy has done some really cool work, and I don't dislike him. I just dislike the attitude. And I think that we've had way too many people all over the world, from people like Darren Daughtry, Jeff Lawton, uh, if you look at the work with remineralizing soils through pasture-based agriculture that people like Mark Shepard's doing, or the earth-shattering stuff that someone like Alan, uh, Alan Savory is doing, and you look at all these different places, you look at all the work that Dr. Ingram's done, the work that Greg Judy's done in, in Missouri, and everything from leaf work, in, in the in the the third world to mainstream agricultural uh, broad acre things here, there's so many things that work, and what I believe works the best is diversity of plantings, focusing on the perennial, involving animals in the system. That it is only through that that you can truly create a resilient system. Not, it's not the only way to make it work, but it's the only way to create a resilient system that actually functions from a return of surplus standpoint and is self-sustaining. 
If you don't put animals into a system, it's not that you can't grow really great food, but you will always be bringing something in. You will always be bringing something in. You will never get a system in the absence of animals where it's not necessary to continue to amend and bring in other things. That's not terrible. It's not horrible. And if you're growing on a quarter-acre suburban lot, it's no big deal. But if you're trying to grow... Five acres, ten acres, a hundred acres of sustainable agriculture, and you try to do it in absence of the animal side of the cycle, the animal that eats the vegetable and the pest, processes it through its gut and, and digestive system, changes its chemical composition, contributes to the bacterial and fungal diversity in its excrement and waste then in some way incorporates that through scratching, pawing, compression, etc. into the system, then you do not have a natural system. Because I could take you anywhere in the world where there is naturally abundant vegetation, and there will also be animal life that is interacting with that naturally abundant vegetation. So, yes, Steve is right when he says, well, if you want nutritionally dense food and you're going to go into a suburban backyard and start growing a garden there, or even a, a fairly large piece of property and start growing a garden, and that soil's already been depleted, that if you take soil samples and then do the amendments of the particular things that are necessary for those plants to have the nutrient density and make sure they're bioavailable, it'll work. Where he's wrong is that's the only thing that'll work. And what he said on the show several times was, everybody just says all you need is lots of organic matter. As long as you need or have organic matter, it'll work. And haven't you heard that? Have you seen that it always works? And no, it doesn't. He's answering his own question before you get, well, how is that organic matter processed? How is that organic matter incorporated? Is it in an organic or, or, I mean, is it in an aerobic or anaerobic state during that, con that, that processing? What's the overall macro and micro climates of the situation? I can take, a, I can take and look at the health and vibrancy of different plant species and the deficiencies in them and say, oh, well, that's, that's an iron deficiency in that plant right there. That doesn't mean there's not enough iron here. That means the iron that's here is not bioavailable. There's a lot of ways to make that iron bioavailable other than bringing in something that either causes the existing iron to chelate or brings in some chelated form of iron. Well, it's chelation. It means it's bioavailable, right? So that's the, that's the simple definition of it. But I'd encourage anybody to get, learn more about Dr. Ingram and, and her approach. It's very scientific. It does rely on soil testing, but more as a proof point. And I don't think you actually have to... <laughs> Do the soil testing. I just think that you learn a lot from it. And in the end, what I like about Dr. Ingram's approach is as scientific as she wants to make it. In the end, add compost to compost tea. And then if we take the permaculture concepts of a complete ecosystem and we add animal activities that are harnessed and channeled through that system, you're going to get a good result. You know, you're going to get a good result. And you're going to do it without constantly putting inputs into the system. And I'll have to say that before I learned more about soil biology, soil life, soil interactions, dynamic accumulation, uh, soil mineralization, animal processes, and overall soil science, that Steve's concepts, while I had issues with them, made a lot more sense to me than they do now. At this point, it's not that he's wrong about what he does will work, but the justification for it is due to a lack of knowledge. 
And this is my big lesson for you guys today, because I find myself slipping into this all the time. As we grow older, and as we become more in tune with what we know, we become less susceptible or less reasonably uh, able to take in new information if we believe that it conflicts in any way with the information that we already have. We become uh, obstinate when it comes to learning new things, developing new things. And I've seen it in all walks of life by all people. And the more people professionalize something, the more they become resistant to anything being added to, appended to, changed about what they think they already know. We see it heavily in the sciences. It's almost always the young scientist who challenges the thing that everybody knows to be true that has the groundbreaking research. It's very seldom that we have you know, a 70-year-old scientist who should be the most knowledgeable in his field come forth and say, everything we thought we knew is wrong. This is the new way forward. It's almost always the 20-30-something, 20 you know, right out of grad school or whatever, that challenges the status quo, that comes up with the new thing. And it's not just in sciences, it's not just in permaculture, it's everywhere. And it's, it's, it's hard to learn new things. You find yourself just... Hand an iPhone to someone that's 40 that knows how to use an iPhone, uh, but hand them the iPhone 6 with new features and gadgets and things like that on it, and then hand one to a kid that's you know 15 years old and watch the difference. As we're younger, we're more open to learning new things, developing new things. So be aware of that for yourself. Moving on to another you know varied subject, try to get as much variety for you as I can on Monday. Uh, this comes from, uh, doesn't say who it comes from. I'm going to call him Gibson due to the email address. So Gibson says, Hi Jack, not sure if you've heard yet or not, but I just wanted to let you know that Microsoft just announced they will start accepting Bitcoin for app and Xbox game purchases. Just more proof that cryptocurrencies are here to stay in one form or another. I think it's important that people learn about these types of technologies sooner rather than later. I try to spread, spread the word for, fairly regularly of new developments in the space. Sadly, though, not many people have necessary attention span to pay attention to Bitcoin yet. Um, I think Bitcoin kind of makes my other point for me, though. Okay, so if you look at Bitcoin, with a few exceptions, most of the people really excited about Bitcoin are in their 30s or younger. They just get it. Oh, it's a way that we can spend money? And we don't have to use other money. Okay. Done. That's it. They, 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 don't, they, don't, they don't require, you know, and you say, well, that's the gullibility of the young person. Well, it, but it works, right? So the gullibility of the young person comes in when they say, all you have to do is, and it doesn't work, and they still believe it. That's gullibility. But this actually works. In fact, had you listened to one of them five years ago, you might be a multimillionaire today. Right? And I don't know that that opportunity really exists anymore. I don't think Bitcoin is a terrible thing to hold, but it is somewhat volatile. It is kind of found its space in the pricing matrix, and it's probably now going to be very stable, and it's probably going to go through its very slow deflationary cycle while our managed currency on the other side goes through an inflationary cycle, and it will gain value over time, uh, averaged out by a, by a moving average over multiple years. But I don't think the days of, well, I'm going to buy $10,000 worth of Bitcoin and it's going to be worth $500,000 next year. I don't think, I think we're done with that. That happened. And the, the people that were open to it early on and not close to it benefited. And you have to start asking yourself what this new generation is going to come up with next. 
Uh, it was young people that, and I don't know what age. We don't really know. We have stories about who created Bitcoin, but it wasn't it wasn't somebody that was 65 that created Bitcoin. And the older I found this to be the case. The older a person is, the more difficult it is to explain what Bitcoin is to them. And when I tried to explain this to my father, this was like trying to explain a pocket computer. And I don't mean this by any disrespect to my father, but it really was like trying to explain a pocket computer to an orangutan. It was just the language was so different and so and this is a guy who switched on economically. My father's view on economics and stocks, investments, securities are part of why I'm so informed about things today because he instilled kind of the the, the thirst for that knowledge and understanding at a very young age in me, but yet in his progression, he hit a point and he stopped, and then that's it. Now I'm done. I, I've and that's where we are with so many things in life right now. Farming, we're in that. The average farmer is 66 years old today. So when you want to know why all these new methods of agriculture aren't being widely embraced, how many 66-year-olds do you know that have their life tied to something, want to try something new in that thing specifically? You know, I I tell you that most 66-year-olds don't want to try anything new unless it's totally different, like totally divorced. Like, I'm going to take up fishing now that I'm retired, and some of this never fished before or never fished much. That uh, I have a great uncle that did that when he was 80. You know, and he was kind of a unique fellow to begin with. But But to say, you've been doing this your whole life this way, now change. It doesn't happen with, with older folks. And that's what we're seeing with Bitcoin. We're seeing a divergence. And I think if you just selected 10,000 people that threw random off the street and said, do you know what Bitcoin is? Can you tell me how it works? And do you think it's a good idea? That right about, I'm going to guess 40, you'd see a divergence, a very clear divergence. And you would definitely see it at 30. I think it'd be more prominent at 30 that there's a very high acceptance in the 20 to 30 year old. And a, and, a, and a marginal acceptance in the, like the 30 to 40, low 40s. I think if you get over 50, most most people over 50 don't have a clue what a Bitcoin is, don't want to know what a Bitcoin is, and aren't going to pay attention. And, and that says something about why we need young people in our society to advance things. So even though they're different, it's come back to the same. Now, I think personally Bitcoin is to social media – what MySpace was to social media. It'll be around a long time. It'll be useful and functional for a long time. And there'll be a lot of mimics of it. And we do it a little bit better, or we do it with a half twist, or we're like this with a slide of bacon or whatever, before a Facebook comes along. And it'll be even more of it before something that's truly unique. Because Facebook was just, we're going to do this a little bit better without all the spam. right? We're going to make some exclusivity on the entry point until we build it up and get some real activity going on and then enhance it with features that these people can't dream of. right? So doing that with a, a cryptocurrency, I think maybe is our next step. But it's going to be something that truly enables 
something along the lines of the virtual nation concept that I've talked about in the past that, that, that does it in such a way that people look at it and go, that's kind of attack proof. I can't really figure out how to get at the people involved with this now. It's, 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 it's impossible. And yet it's easy. So that a person can say, I want to become a citizen of Libertas, my virtual nation I created in my head, right? And they sign up and they do it. And they can be doing business as a Libertasian almost immediately. And no one can do anything to prevent it. And I think virtual currencies and virtual currency-like technologies are one way to enable that. And when you'll see success, and this is something that Bitcoin hasn't been able to do yet, is when there's a decoupling with dollar mentality. So right now, if I'm going to buy something in Bitcoin, it's probably still priced in dollars. I'm not going to go to a website and see it's .13 Bitcoins. And even if it is... Do you know what I'm going to do? Uh, that is, oh, that's how much dollars that is, right? That's, uh, I see, I'll go to Google and see, oh, that's $45.77. And then I'll make my decision based on that. When you get into a virtual nation mode, what will start happening is things that can be exchanged and traded for value in a virtual nation will begin to be traded with a value independent of dollars or euros at least on most things. And what I mean by that is, so if I'm in Europe and I'm spending euros, I don't really think about what's the exchange rate with the dollar until something I'm buying goes way up or way down in price. The European Union has its own economy. The United States of America has its own economy. The Canadian uh, government and the Canadian nation have its own economy. The Russian nation has its own economy. And until there's some kind of big decoupling, some kind of inflationary curve, nobody really thinks about it. It's what you call relative currency strength. Okay, and that how strong is the currency within its own community? So when somebody's buying something uh, in in Japan. They don't say, well, how many dollars is that? Unless they're an American tourist, right? And, and then it's still like once you've converted to the local currency, if you go to France and you go buy euros and you have a pocket full of euros and you're walking through France and you see a picture that some guy in the street artist has made, you want to buy it and you say, how much is that? And the guy says, uh, for you, my friend, 20 euros, right? And you don't really think about the fact that's about 30 bucks, If you've already, if you've been there a while, you've started to use the euro, you've got euros on hand, you know how many euros are still in your pocket after you give them 30 euros, you know how long you're going to be there, you know you're not going to run out of money, you, you now start to see the money with the relative currency strength, the value that it has within its own economy. As virtual nations begin to take on the role of enabling interrelationships and commerce and activity within them, and provide more and more of the needs of their citizenry, less concern will be made as to how the currency might trade outside of that economy. Far less. And it has to start with non-material goods. But again, what is, one of the, what is the one industry I keep hammering on needing to change? Education. Education can be a 100% non-material goods product now. And... Here's a fundamental law of economics that most people do not fully comprehend. Any monumentous 
industry within an economy creates countless opportunities for sub-industries and other industries that serve them. So if we look at education in America, the public education system in America, and we look at the way we run a public education institution today, and this is not judging, this is not me being negative, this is just what we do. So we decide we need a new school. So there's all types of other jobs that are a result. Let's not say created by, but a result of this. For instance, since we're going to use property taxes, there's a whole tax assessor's office, and uh, there's a whole group of, of people that are employed solely for the purpose of stealing the money from the property owner to build another piece of property out in the form of a school. Then the school has to be built, so there's construction costs, And then once the school is built, there's ongoing maintenance costs, both of landscaping and the building itself. There's all types of software and hardware that go in the building, and I don't just mean computers when I say hardware. Everything from lockers to actual computers to software the school buys to gym equipment, all of these things actually create an industry right? that has a sales funnel, a process funnel. And then we have teachers, and the teachers all come to the school And that means that they have to have vehicles, and those vehicles create tax revenue from fuel sales, selling, uh, selling of fuels, uh, and, and energy to run the school also creates tax base, which goes into the public sector and goes through its own funnels. And you just keep going, right? So then the teachers get there, they teach, they earn a salary. That salary gets spent, and by spending that salary, Within their local communities, they, they further spur the economy into other opportunities. So the guy down the road that sells uh, beef jerky at the convenience store is selling to a teacher who's been addicted to it since he was in school himself, and it just continues to cascade. So when you look at a virtual nation, and I go in there and I set up the, 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 the Jack's School of Hard Knocks right for, for, for teenagers that want to learn whatever I want to teach, You'd say, well, a lot of that stuff's just not there anymore. Well, the overhead's not there anymore, but the results can be just as powerful, if not more powerful, because they're leveraged on actual possibilities, not on required hard goods. So Jack's School of Hard Knocks doesn't have a building. There's no building costs. There's no teachers other than me. My lesson plans can be enacted and put in place, and I can do two or three hours a week of answering questions from students who are at different levels of progressing through that plan, right? And I can, do, and I can have other teachers doing that and what have you. But there's a, there is a commerce of exchange, right? We're exchanging information, and what ends up happening is because we're no longer construed and, and, and controlled and contrived into, you know, you have to do these things in school – I end up with students who are very gifted at what I'm teaching, but they have a need that I can't meet. So then that creates an opportunity for someone else to come in and meet that need as a teacher. And then I might have some students that are having a little bit of trouble getting through what I do, and I teach at a certain level, so now there's another teaching opportunity for someone to come in as what you would think of as a tutor. But it, it doesn't just stop there. So as I'm developing my curriculum, I might want to create a very interactive exchange of information. So I might use some of my profits to purchase uh, software that allows me to interact with my students more like a formal classroom. 
you might pr purchase a, a, a solution that allows for more of a, a, a in, interactive between the class themselves. And that creates opportunity. And all this stuff has to be held somewhere, so then all of that information is hosted. That's another industry, right? That's like your library in, in a school, where instead of investing in books, we're investing in disk space. And then the students themselves, if we're actually teaching them life skills, are going to be developing the skills to go out and actually deliver product or service to somebody else, Much of it can probably be delivered inside the VN, the virtual nation. And what can you actually do inside a virtual nation? And here's the reality. We don't know yet. We have no idea. We have no idea how far this can go. Just because it starts with non-physical product doesn't mean it can't eventually go to physical product. And you can say, well, the government of the physical locale will say it's subject to their laws and regulations, rules, taxes, etc. Maybe. It doesn't mean it still can't be more efficient through the virtual nation. It really doesn't. Or it doesn't mean that the local government or the, the governments of the world that are out there that uh, would seek to gain from this might not have to meet the VN on its own level. In other words, we, we don't use dollars, so you can have your money, but you'll have to set up a presence in Libertas and take Libertasian currency. And here's what that means. We, we don't know what that means yet. We, we won't know. And it won't be people my age that make it happen. And it won't be people my age that come up with these creative solutions into making it happen. It just won't be. It'll be people that right now aren't old enough to make it happen yet. It'll be people that are 14 and 15 right now. 10 years from now. When they're in their prime of their 20s that are beginning to develop these solutions, and a lot of us folks that are, are getting older just can't even see how this, we, like, even people that are visionary, you know, like, you know, in their 40s, like I try to be, will go, I can't, that's not what I meant, that's not going to, and bam, it'll work. Because it has to. Because mankind as a whole needs a leap forward right now to fulfill our destiny. It is not just the educational system that's obsolete. It's the majority of systems in the world today have become obsolete. We, we have extended them to their maximum productivity, and their productivity actually is beginning to wane. And it is only through a complete evolution of technology and thinking that we can go forward. Let's take another one. Trying to keep the variety up for you today, let's talk about making bread. We talked last week about making bread. And uh, I said that I'm not a big fan of making bread because I don't think bread is the best food for human beings, and I don't think wheat's the best food for human beings. But you can eat it, and I think if you're going to eat it, eating a fermented product, a sourdough product, is a lot better of a way to go. And Justin sent me an email on just that sourdough starters. And the typical way you get a sourdough starter is you barter with someone who's already been doing it for a while, or you purchase one. And a sourdough starter are these wild forms of yeast that uh, react with uh, the, the, the components of, of flour differently and ferment and give the slightly sour taste of, of sourdough. And understand a lot of times when you buy bread in a store that's called sourdough, the bread's been soured, but it's not sourdough. It hasn't gone through this process. Um, but Justin sends me an email for how you can create 
your own sourdough starter using grapes or currants, and I thought I'd read it for you guys. Hi, Jack. I was listening to Friday's episode, heard the part about sourdough bread. Thought I'd write in a suggestion for you I learned from a baker in Napa while visiting my sister. It's a technique using the wild beneficial yeast found on grapes to make fermented breads and prevent other bacteria from coming in. You take one half pound of grapes or currants from your garden. They don't have to be ripe, but they do need to have the silver film on them. Then you take one cup of, one half cup of water and one cup of flour, mostly organic bread flour, but you can mix in rye, amaranth, etc. to your taste. Uh, but you need the gluten from the bread flour. Put them all in a bowl and mix them in and cover with a cheesecloth and secure with a rubber band. Every day, add one half cup of water and one half cup of bread flour for four more days. Let rest for two days and you've got yourself a wild yeast sourdough starter. And then you keep this going and you always save a little bit back and you, you keep making bread with it and you get your rise and you get your yeast activity. Now, I want to correct one thing that Justin had to say there. Not that it's a huge thing, but it is kind of a good thing to understand. Doing what he said, using something like grapes that have certain yeasts that are on them and certain bacteria that are on them that we know are predominant there, doesn't keep out other yeasts and bacterias. What it does is it allows this infused, inoculated strain or group of strains to so dominate others that they take up most of the resources, the carbohydrate, right, the, the available components to ferment, that the other bugaboos that get in have a minor effect on the overall quality, taste, flavor, etc. Because we've, we've simply dominated the starter with a dominant strain or group of strains, which is how all the yeasts that we use throughout the world and everything from making wine and champagne and beer to breads have been refined. And we got very, very good at it scientifically over time where we could isolate strains and get them into a very, very pure strains. But in the end, they all came from somewhere. And most were harvested with some sort of indigenous microorganism capture. And that's what we're doing here. We're doing an indigenous microorganism capture off of the grapes, which is the same way we make sauerkraut. So if you buy cabbage in a store, you can make sauerkraut. It never quite has the character of cabbage that's grown in a garden and harvested from a garden because it's not scrubbed, it's not sprayed with anything, and it comes straight from the garden. And we take it in and we rinse it off, but we don't scrub it, right? And it's got this film on it, right? This this dusty, silvery film. And that's where a lot of the lactobacillus, and that's part of what's in the, the sourdough, is a lactobacillus, or a lacto-fermenting bacterium, is on the sauerkraut, it's on, it's on the, the grapes, and we're infusing that in and allowing it to dominate the mixture so that it takes precedence over everything else. So... For instance, if I had a great big flock of ducks, and in that flock of ducks I had a thousand Cayuga ducks, drakes and ducks mixed, male and female mixed, and I threw in a couple uh, odd Rowans and Swedish uh, here and there, and I started incubating and hatching eggs, I'm going to get the occasional half-breed, and I'm going to get the occasional Rowan or the occasional Swedish, but 99% of my offspring are going to be Cayugas. So think of it like that. 
You're, you're creating a dominant strain of, of lactobacillus by harvesting it from a source that's known to attract it. So, and this is something new for me. I didn't know that grapes necessarily uh, attract this form uh, of, of bacterium, but apparently they do. So it'd be something interesting to try. And again, it's why that sauerkraut made from locally sourced or grown in your backyard cabbage just tastes better than stuff when you make it from cabbage at the store. So here's an interesting one bringing us back to the educational standpoint. This comes from James, and it says, How do I become a freelance teacher? Here's some background. I have 11 years of experience teaching high school vocational education, but we homeschool our kids. I understand that public education is not the only education and not the best education. Professionally, I can see the wave of change coming towards me. Good. Um, I want to be riding that wave, not crushed by it. I am the only breadwinner in the family, so I'm always looking to diversify my income. On the other hand, I can't quit my job to pursue a new business that may succeed or not. Uh, let me just tell you that that has nothing to do with being a teacher. Every single person that ever started a business had to deal with that reality. Just saying. Uh, you can only have you have your ear to the ground and you work with a space of internet marketing. Do you have any suggestions, James? Uh, here's my deal on this. you got to start thinking totally radically different than you're accustomed to. And you're probably ahead of the curve on that as teachers go, because teachers are very much institutionalized by their own institution. And they don't think outside the box at all. And they don't think beyond where they are far enough to get to where you're trying to get to in general. Always, when I say stuff like that, I mean in general. Don't write me and tell me you do. I, I understand. But in general, those that work in institutions are institutionalized by their institutions. And then when they want to replace their institution, they want to replace it with something that's like the institution that they're part of. And then they wonder why it's hard to do and why nobody wants to choose that alternative when it's the same. Here's what I mean. I don't consider private education private education in in 99% of the time. So, for instance, when I was a kid in Jacksonville, Florida, for a number of years until I managed to strategically get myself kicked out, and yes, it was an intentional thing, uh, I went to Catholic school. And uh went to a, a, a school called Resurrection Catholic School. It still exists in Jacksonville, Florida. And in that school, I got the same education, possibly one could argue a bit better, than the public school students that were going to school right down the road from me out of public school. The difference was I had a religious class. I went to church on Wednesdays and every holy day of obligation, and we did the Stations of the Cross every week during Lent. That was pretty much it. So I had a religious component added to a public education, smaller class sizes, and, and probably great, definitely greater teacher oversight. And I would argue likely the teachers were uh, marginally better on average than many of the teachers I later encountered in the public system. My parents paid tuition for me to go to that school, and I went to that school. I wore a uniform like all little Catholic kids, a little blue shirt, a little blue slacks, and, you know, all that type of thing. Um. Why do I say that's not a private education? Because it's not. It's, economically speaking, a neo-fascist education. Not that the Catholic Church are neo-fascists. I don't mean it that way. I mean, the, the entity, the school entity of that church was subject to oversight, rule by, and structure according to the state of Florida. So, 
the state of Florida still said you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this way. There has to be that many hours of this, there has to be this many hours of that. This was a, a, a Catholic school that only went to eighth grade. So if you want your kids to be able to come out of your school and get into our ninth grade, these are the requirements they have to have. These are the proficiencies they have to have. They have to do this, or we won't recognize that. And you know, the, the, these are all the things you have to do within our state to comply with the state board of education requirements for education. Well, that's not a private education. That's a state education administered by a private agency. Now, if a teacher wants to become freelancer, build their own business on education, you got to get straight away from that. You got to stop worrying about what the state says immediately. And you have to stop trying to make your training, education, etc. look anything like the state's version of it. It might end up having similarities, but it needs to end up having similarities because based on your goals and your agendas and what you're trying to do and the market you're trying to serve, that works. Not because that's what you know. So that's the first thing. Then the next thing I would advise every teacher out there that would like to be able to teach for a living without being subject to the onerous uh, master that is your state and, go and local government to then now and analyze those who already teach for a profit in true private educational systems. This is largely not academic, okay? But karate teachers, look at how karate teachers work. Karate teachers do not have their students in class for eight hours a day. And they teach something that I believe actually requires far more discipline and far more study in many instances than algebra does. You need a willing, engaged student that wants what you have to be a karate teacher and be successful with producing good students. Students come in for one to two. I've seen some karate schools now doing three hours of education because they're becoming substitutes for daycare without actually saying that. And, and it's not a terrible thing. And some of those schools actually have activities that are outside of martial arts. So they come in, students do kind of a, an hour of self-directed training once they've had a, enough training to do that, an hour of a session, and then an hour of basically fun time where they kind of do their own thing. With some supervision. And, and, you know, that model's working. Okay. Why is that model working? First of all, that karate teacher doesn't give a rip from Sunday what the state of Florida or Texas or Pennsylvania says about the educational institution. Doesn't care. Doesn't care. I'm teaching Taekwondo or Lissados Joe or, you know, Chan Ru or whatever it is. I'm teaching my Tai Chi. I'm teaching, you know, uh, some kind of hybrid modern American jiu-jitsu. I'm teaching my own thing. I don't care what you say. I I'm not trying to comply with anything the public sector wants me to comply with. I don't care. I'm selling to a, a, a want. I'm helping my students learn something they want to learn and their parents want them to learn and they're happy to pay for. Dance teachers do the same thing. Music teachers do the same thing. And... So that is part of the model to look at. How do those companies work? How do those teachers work? What do those teachers do? How do they operate differently? Then the next thought experiment I would have for you would be, and this, as a vocational teacher, you're already in a different league. Because you are teaching kids hard skills that they're going to use if they choose to anyway. Um, you know, if you're teaching a kid auto mechanics or auto body repair or, or uh, some kind of technical computer training, you're giving them a relevant life skill they can go out and use. But for many teachers, especially teachers that are in the, you know, the, the grade school, junior high realm, 
Uh, the kids come in, they sit down, you have a curriculum that's given to you by the state, you teach to that curriculum, that curriculum results in a specific result graded a certain way with certain types of testing, including standardized testing, which determine whether you're doing your job or not, and you sit in this, this, this pre-made mold that's given to you. And there's only so much creativity, and, and great teachers always use charisma and storytelling and things like that to make what they're teaching more interesting and better absorbed by their pupils. But in the end, in that system, you're in this mold, and it's, you're predetermined you will do what we say, and you will teach what we tell you to teach. Now, I'm going to tell you something a lot of teachers initially would say, woohoo, if they were told this, until the reality set in. I want you to imagine, it's about halfway through the school year now, we're heading to Christmas holidays, that the principal of your school, the chairman of the school board, whatever, called a great big meeting and brings everybody in right before the Christmas break and says, we've determined that what everybody knows already is true. We shouldn't be running education the way that we are. From this point forward, every teacher in our school system will be free to teach whatever they want, however they want, by any means that they want, in any way that they want, after this year's over. So you have all the time in the world between Christmas and summer break to think about this. And then you have all summer break to develop your own lesson plan for what you're going to teach in August or September, depending on where you live when the kids come back to school. You're free. You are free of the oversight of the school board. You are free of the oversight of the state. You are free of everything. Your accountability is now to your students and to your parents, and the administration exists for conflict resolution where somebody's upset about something or you've broken the law or a parent is being unreasonable or whatever. So that's the way it's going to be. Woo-hoo, how awesome is that? Hold on, they keep going. By the way, No student can be compelled to take your classes at all, ever, under any circumstances. Any student who chooses to no longer be your student can go take someone else's class. Woo-hoo? Okay. Oh, we're not done yet. Your salary will now be based on your student headcount. Each student in this school equals X dollars a year, so each hour they're here equals Y dollars. The school needs 10% for overhead, and you get 90% of the hour that the student represents by sitting in your class, if they choose to take your class. Woo-hoo. Huh? Okay. Oh, by the way, none of the students can be compelled to come to this school anymore. If they want to come to this school, if they want to come to this school, they can If they decide they want to go to the other school down the road, they can go there instead. So you're not only competing with every other teacher in your school, you're, te you're competing with every other teacher in every school in our district that it would be reasonable for that kid to go to that school. Woo-hoo. That's how you have to think. Now, Think about it from now until June 1st, May 25th, whatever it is that your school period ends, and then take all summer to develop the curriculum that you will roll out in your classroom. The students will sign up for the way they do in college. I'll take Professor X for this, Professor Y for that, okay? And then they'll come in and they'll sit down already bright-eyed, willing to learn, and if they decide that your teaching is shit, they will say, 
I will no longer take this teacher's class and they will go somewhere else. And, and here's the best part of all. Every student will have a computer that they'll be walking around to do their education with. And on it will be a rating system. And all the students will rate all the teachers as to how good they are and what they're learning and how much they're getting from. And the parents will rate them too. Woohoo! But don't worry. You have all the way up until summer break to think about it and all through summer break to develop that curriculum that you would roll out in this new system to attract students who want to learn from you. And then do it. There it is. And then do it. Imagine that happened to you. Have that thought experiment. Spend the next December through May contemplating it. And then spend all summer long, since you, as a teacher, you get three months a year off, whether you want to admit it or not, and sit down. It's two months and seven or days and three weeks, whatever. Okay, it's, it's about three months. And develop the curriculum. And then roll it out online. And there's other things you can do to make it more powerful. Like I would start talking, know your market. What's your market here? Well, your biggest market would be homeschoolers that have the freedom to augment the education, even if there's oversight with other things. I would be talking to, to homeschool parents. What are your biggest pain points? What are the things you most want your children to learn? Shooting from the hip, I think one of the biggest markets out there for homeschoolers is probably real American history. What really happened from the 1600s up to now in America? What's the real history of America? How do we get where we are? What's true and what's not true? What's mythology? How do we determine the difference between the two? I think a class for homeschoolers that would be well-received would be Basic Trivium 101. How to exercise grammar, rhetoric, and logic to learn and make your case. And, and keep, create a framework for an education that would allow a kid to use anything from Iron Man comic books to Stephen Hawking's writings on the universe to go through that course. And create some sort of interactive component. Three times a week, the teacher is available for an hour to discuss with any student or any parent any tripping point that they're having on any of these things to make your work scalable. If you do that right, when you go into your second summer, you might be developing market feedback-based technology to walk away by the time you come back into that next school year. You might be. I don't know. This is some place that teachers need to think outside the box. And don't limit yourself to academia. Right? What do people want to learn? Stop worrying about what, what colleges want to get a student in the classrooms. That system exists, and it's monopolized. What do people want to learn? What do employers want students to know how to do? I'd go to the 10 biggest employers in your local community and say, if you were going to hire someone that was 20 years old, what is the knowledge and skills that would be necessary for that person to get a job? Don't tell me about what education, certification. you. What are the knowledge and skills? What professional organizations do you recognize? Right. Besides the university of blah, blah, blah. Right. The, you know, if you have a, 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 an organization that issues private credentials, 
that that employer recognizes, then go to that institution and go, what are the knowledge and skills that you need to be able to recognize this person? Besides University of Blah Blah Blah. You might find that there's all types of opportunities, but you have to investigate them. But that's, I, and I think this is an interesting thought experiment for every teacher out there. I don't care if you teach kindergarten. I don't care if you teach 12th grade. I don't care if you teach college. Imagine that happened. Imagine your school district gave you complete control over what you teach, but you were then subject to a market force. Students choosing to take your class. And don't be like, well, all the teachers that just gave out A's to sit there and pick your nose. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. That's just dumb. That's just dumb. It's not going to happen. And unlike this place that I gave you for your thought experiment, please use your brain and understand that the real world doesn't even work that way. A lot of you'd be, if, if this happened, a lot of teachers would be totally screwed by it and you'd still have an unfair advantage. Students whose tuition is paid by a public entity through taxation forced to choose a school to go to and a seat to sit in. It's still a massive unfair advantage. If you can't make money under that model as a teacher, you shouldn't be a teacher. It's way unfair. It's way closed. You still have an institution of higher learning that says, you know, a public education institution that says, you are credentialed as a teacher and you qualify to be here and here's a classroom to work with and here's a market that we've caught, captured for you and we'll tell them they have to come and we'll tell them they have to show up to somebody's class. That's not how the real world works. When you roll out the software that's supposed to outcompete Microsoft, you have to make people want to buy it or no one buys it and nothing happens. And that's called fair. That's a free market. So run that scenario. And if you can't figure out how you'd survive in that scenario, I suggest you try to keep your job for as long as possible. Because you're not cut out for the private sector if you can find a true private sector anymore. But again, I would start with the basics. Look at all the people that teach for a living that are truly private. Dance instructors, music teachers, uh, you name it. Karate instructors, boxing instructors, fitness coaches, everybody that practices education outside of the conventional system. What are they doing and how can you implement that in what you want to do? Here's an email that I refuse to answer, but I'm going to answer on air anyway. It comes from Christina, <laughs> and I'll tell you how I answered it. Uh, first, before I give a, a different answer, which I actually gave by email as well to Christina. Hey, Jack, I'm not asking you for financial advice. You know what I think when I read that? You're going to ask me for financial advice. Dear listener, pay attention. Here's why. I'm asking you what you would do in the following situation. You are a 40-year-old with a spouse and three young children, completely debt-free, enjoying a stable and modestly paying job. You have a decent amount of preps and storage. You inherit $50,000, which is sitting in your bank account. What do you do with the money? Thank you, Christina. My response was, that is the very definition of asking for investment advice. Uh, Christina responded with, darn, I was hoping for some guidance, but I got you. Okay, now here's what I eventually said. This is what I would do. If you're in that, I got $50,000 just burning a hole in my pocket. I don't know what to do with this money. We basically can pay our bills. We don't have any debt. We need to invest this $50,000, and we don't know how. I would open a separate bank account, and I would put the money in there. And I would make it a little more complicated to get at that money. 
something where you have to go to the bank and, and fill out a withdrawal slip. I wouldn't have it electronically able to just transfer from that bank to my everyday usable bank. And I would just put it there and leave it alone for right now. <gasps> But inflation is shut up. Inflation isn't going to do jack diddly crap to your 50 grand for the next year. Two, three, four percent, whatever. You're probably going to lose more than that dicking around with it if you try to do something with it when you don't know what you're doing. Okay? It's money. It's dramatically stable in spite of how crappy our economic system is. Leave it alone. Most of the rest of the world, right now, that's shitting a brick over the economic system globally, are buying dollars. Put it in an account and leave it alone until you stop worrying about what do I need to do with it. Because here's a fundamental reality. If you invest $50,000 for the next year and make a 5% return on your $50,000, you're going to have a whopping profit of $2,500. And in return for that $2,500, you're going to have... A huge portion, if not all, of that $50,000 at risk of losing on your investment for that entire year. And you can probably make an extra $2,500 with a side business or a part-time job delivering pizzas for three months this year. And you could take that $2,500 and put it with your $50,000, never having really put it at risk. And you could put your $50K into something like CDs or staggered CDs or something like that with a guaranteed return, FDIC insurance, etc. $50,000 isn't that much money. If you've never had $50,000 of surplus cash in your hands before, it seems like a lot of money, but it's not that much money. doesn't go that far. Average American with a good job, makes more than that in a year, and has nothing at the end of the year. So it's, it, it doesn't really pay for a year of living. It can. It can pay for multiple years of living used right and harnessed right. But in the end, it, it, it isn't. So putting it at risk, just because I have to do something with it, is probably a huge mistake. And it just might be that the right opportunity to use that money is three or four or five months from now. And you have to get out of the mentality of, I have to do something with it before you can do something with it. Okay? Let me put it to you, just like take a totally different analogy. If, if a woman came to you and said, my goal is to meet a husband. I, I, I'm single, and I want to be married, and I want a man in my life, and these are all the reasons that I want a man in my life, and I feel I need this to complete myself, and I'm looking for a husband. How do I find a husband? You'd say, okay, this is what I need you to do. Stop looking for a husband. Stop looking for anybody. Set up your own life the way you want it as a single person. Get out of that mentality. Get out of the man trap mentality. And develop a fulfilling life for yourself as an individual. And then be open to the fact that someone else may add to and expand that life. And go out and be interactive and deal with people. And when you meet someone, don't worry about whether they make a good husband or not. Whether or not they make a good friend is what's most important first. And have a lot of friends. And don't worry about, like, if somebody asks you on a date, hell, it's just a date. Go bowling or have a dinner. And if it doesn't work out for the future, you still have a friend. 
and introduce that friend to other friends and, and be social and be active and fulfill your own life and feel that you don't need anybody and then you'll find someone that makes what you have even better. And that person will probably be the husband you're looking for. Okay, <laughs> That analogy can apply to almost everything in life that people screw up. Money, politics, religion, life-altering choices. This is what happens. We feel, i got to do something. Every time you see something really shitty happen politically, what is the reason that it's done? We have to do something. All of the shitty firearms legislation that came in after Sandy Hook came in under what? We have to do something. And then the same person that recognizes how dumb that is comes into $50,000 and goes, I've got to do something with it. Save it. Save it. Let it be what it is. $50,000 you didn't have yesterday. And when you come to the realization that it's nothing but money, and it has a value onto itself, and it sits there, and it provides an insurance policy for you against future obstructions in your life. And it provides the opportunity to possibly invest in the education of your children if they want to go that route in the future. Or the opportunity to one day have a better home, or to remodel your home so you don't have to buy a new home. Or all these other things that money could do that are independent of what you would think of conventional investment and you become at peace with that, and you become simply happy that that money exists, then you can start thinking logically and methodically about how, where, and when, and if to invest it. And the fear of loss, of gain, is no reason to be compelled to take risk. Let me say that again. The fear of loss of gain is no reason to be compelled to take risk. That almost always results in big problems for people. It almost always happens this way. They come into a lot of money. Right at the time, the stock market has done really well. All the people around them with 401ks have been making double-digit returns. They want some, too. Now they have the money. I'll put it in and catch up. And it's usually right at the top of these markets that there's downturns in those markets. So I know I'll be a contrarian and buy silver. 16 bucks. That's a deal. Jack said so. But over the next three or four years, silver continues to take a downturn for a while before it goes on its next up cycle, and it ends up at $11. Now you have silver that you paid sales tax on. The year it, it just put it aside and wait till you're not worried about it. And then logically and methodically determine your investment strategy. That's the best answer I can give you on that. And it's just like dating. It's just like looking for a husband or a wife. As long as you're looking, if you feel I need to have someone in my life, you'll create codependency with whoever you do find. Because you'll find someone in that same mode. And you're both making a decision out of I need somebody. What Dorothy and I have always told people, I said, well, you guys have been together now almost 20 years. And you're happy and you love each other. What's your secret? We laugh because we both think the same thing. When I met her or when I met him, I thought, I don't need you. I don't need you. And then we got to a point where we wanted each other in our lives. So I don't need to invest this money. I want to invest this money. But I want to invest it in the right investment. So I'm going to go learn about investing and forget the money's even there and just be happy that it is. 
and I'm not going to have any fire lit under my ass for that investment. And when I think, oh, this is the greatest investment ever, I need to invest in this, I'm going to wait two weeks. I mean, when I meet, if I met, you know, I, when I was dating and I meet a new woman, I think, this girl is awesome. You know, she's right where she's supposed to be on the hot crazy matrix. If you want to look that up on YouTube under James Jagger's channel, right? She's perfect. I didn't go, you know what? Let's get married. I mean, you know, let's, let's go on a couple more dates and see if it really is a perfect match. And I didn't st keep trying to make it a perfect match. If it wasn't, it wasn't. I can either live with this or I can't. I can either accept this or I don't want to. That's how you have to be about investing. You have to be very agnostic in certain ways about investing. If I don't understand the investment, I'm not investing in it. But I don't care how I emotionally feel about the investment. In fact, if I'm emotional about the investment, I don't want to make the decision. The money in the bank, save it for now. You're not yet ready to invest. If you're asking some wingnut like me with a podcast what to invest in. Let's take another call, or another uh, email. All right, so the next one comes from Karim, and this is another total different divergence from the topic we've been on. Jack, short, short and simple question. Is it worth the time and effort to get a progressive press? Backstory, I was looking at buying myself a fancy progressive press for Christmas this year and pricing everything out. While doing this, I peeked at the price for 40 factory uh, Remington, I guess, as well as steel-cased. Uh, much to my surprise, 40, which never has been as long as I've been a shooter, was selling for a few bucks per thousand over my reloading cost. Steel case was actually a dollar cheaper than my reloading cost. I buy once fired brass and use it once. I had no idea the price of ammo had crashed so dramatically. Heck, even new manufacturer's ammo is about 25 to 30 dollars, uh, a thousand over my reloading cost. Thanks, Krim. Uh, I actually think if you're a 40 shooter, uh, a 9 millimeter shooter, uh, 223, uh, 308, it's hard to make the economic case for reloading, especially if you are a high volume shooter that, that, that runs, you know, thousands of rounds. It's just not that expensive. It has its peaks and its valleys, and boy, it's nice to be a reloader during those times when it's peaked, right? But if you buy when it's when it's cheap and, and store ammo, and we talked about last week, the ammo just pretty much stores longer than you do. So don't worry about vacuum sealing it or any other crap. Just keep it clean, dry, and, and out of the light, and you're, you're good to go. Um, it, it doesn't really matter because there's a fundamental reality for reloaders as well. Do you know what gets really expensive really fast when ammo prices go up? Primers. Now, it's true that I can store 20,000 primers Uh, in a far less space than you can store 20,000 rounds. And, you know, I can store a few thousand cases, uh, you know, cartridge cases and reload those multiple times. So I can take up less space for 20,000 rounds equivalency, uh, as a reloader. But it, it ain't the advantage some make it out to be. Progressive presses. This is how I view them. First, I don't own one. That tells you something. Uh, but I see progressive presses for the high-volume reloader that likes to reload, that, that, that does a lot of shooting. Um, or the high-volume reloader loading custom loads. So if you want to load something in high-volume that you cannot buy, either because you're a custom an ammo maker that you, know, you load for others, or because you run a school and you want your students shooting a certain custom load or whatever, um, They make sense. But it's a high-volume proposition. And it's not really an economic proposition, though you can make it more economical than you might think. So if you didn't only reload once, if you reloaded more than one time per case, 
that already starts to up the uh, up the, the, the 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 value proposition. But you could also be reloading, especially in larger cartridges, if you're shooting, you know, uh, rifle cartridges, somewhat reduced loads and save money on powder over a thousand rounds, because your practice ammo doesn't need. It just doesn't need to be pushed to its maximum velocity. In fact, it's probably better that it's not, because if you're putting thousands of rounds through your barrel, if we pull that velocity back a little bit, we extend the barrel life a great deal. Right? So there's ways to, to bring down the cost, but it's not really about cost, especially of high-volume production. Reloading, to me, is about being able to load ammo that I cannot buy. For my rifles, it's about being able to take my little Savage 308, put a couple boxes of ammo through it at a day at the range, save all the brass that was fired in that, ammo, that, that, that rifle, put in a box and label it as such, which it's probably already in. Savage Model 10 serial number on it. And that means those cases are married to that gun. They're fire-formed. When I reload them, I'm only going to resize the neck and make sure the length of the cartridge is trimmed right and chamfered and everything. But that is now like a glove to that gun. It fits that gun perfectly. And those cartridges are going to be loaded with rounds that are going back to that gun. I can buy ammo that works very well off the shelf, and it's going to be as accurate as it ever needs to be in that little Savage 308, but it will never quite be that perfect for it. And to be able to then say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take those those 40 rounds, and I'm going to load five at the starting velocity for a standard load for this particular bullet with this particular powder. I'm going to buy, load five at the next level and next level and next level all the way up to the maximum velocity. Then I'm going to take that gun, and I'm going to go back to my range, and I'm going to load maybe 10 of each level. And I'm going to fire five rounds. I'm going to let the barrel cool. I'm going to fire five rounds in the next level. I'm going to let the barrel cool. I'm going to do that. Then I'm going to go back through and do it again just to get repeatable results. And I'm going to see what particular point I get the optimum accuracy, not the most feet per second. Because we're in a range where if it's 100, 150 feet per second, it's pretty academic. What I want is precision. And I can say it's this load, this third-tier load with this bullet and this powder with these cases that makes this rifle do its best. And unless I ever tweak something out that turns out better, that becomes that load for that rifle. I can't buy that load for that rifle with those cartridges loaded that way. I don't really care what my cost per round is anymore. As long as it's not ridiculously more expensive, I have something I cannot buy. To me, it's priceless. To me... The reloading takes on its, its, its real potential when I take and I load up my highly reduced loads for 44 Magnum with 300 grain hard cast lead. And my 44 Magnum rifle sounds like a pellet gun when I fire it, but penetrates seven inches of pressure treated lumber with that round at 40 yards. I can't buy that round. Oh, by the way, that round's not a squib load. It's not a reduced power load. It is a, it is the lightest. Published load that I could find for 44 Special in the old Red Lee Loader Manual. To me, this is where hand loading really takes on its own world. If you just want lots of cheap ammo, 
the, the reality is, except in certain cycles uh, of, the, of the supply and demand curve, there is no way you can load as fast, as cheap as Remington or Winchester, etc. You can't. Especially when you're relied on, relying on either them or their sources for your components. And you might be 10 bucks cheaper here on a thousand rounds or 500 rounds or 20 bucks there or about the same here. But in the end, overall, mass production works. Right? Mass production drives down prices. Hand loading to me is more about customization. But I would never tell someone don't get a progressive press because you're stupid if you do. If you like to load, it's your thing. And I'll look at it this way too. Let's say you save $20 a thousand. And you like doing it, and that's what you'd like to do with your free time. It's still 20 bucks in your pocket. But how many boxes do you have to load before you recoup the cost of that press? And did that press require new dies or new accessories or something like that? You know, you have to put the whole component, you know, factorization in there. What's the payback time? And to me, it's just not there. And I know guys that load the hell out of 5.56, man. And they say, I just couldn't afford to shoot if I didn't do this. And you say, well, you can, well, I don't like that stuff. And you look at the components they're using, and they're not far off. And if you're shooting that much, you're not precision shooting. You're training for muscle re uh, memory. You're training for target engagement, target acquisition. You're training for cadence of fire, etc. Uh, again, it's great to reload. Because you can produce ammo when it becomes hard to get or hard to find. That, that's, that's true. But I can do that with a single-stage press. And I can load four boxes an hour, you know, 80 to 100 rounds an hour, without, you know, speeding up, without trying to do it really fast, just kind of fiddle-farting around. I can load about four, four boxes an hour, about 80 rounds an hour. And that's really being careful, really being procedural, et cetera, and, and not sweating it. You know, I can sit in front of my TV set watching uh, a, an episode of TV with my case trimmer and trim the cases, and I don't really count that as to be much in line with what I'm doing because otherwise I'd just be sitting there not doing anything. I don't have to really think about that. The tool sets the, the depth. I can sit there and chamfer, and it's fun. I, I enjoy doing it. So that, that kind of comes out of the equation. I'm talking about just sitting down and you know priming, charging, seating, crimping, boxing, labeling. How, how much ammo do you really need to load? Um, and if the answer is a ton, then a progressive press is the way to go. But you have to examine your own motivation for why you're doing that. Anyway, those are my thoughts on that. Um, and it sounds like for your particular situation, Krim, it may not be worth it. It may be better just to stick to your, to, to, you know, your single stage stuff and invest in other calibers of dies and things like that for your rifles and other guns to do more creative, more custom things than in a, a progressive press just to try to save a buck or two. And then you might find it takes you five years to get your money back on the press for the little bit you can save. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess we follow all the rules 
Yeah.